Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to the Block by Design Podcast, where we explore the power and process behind Design for Web3. We'll guide you through the immense challenges faced in Web3 and how embracing the right design methodologies helped overcome these blockers. I'm Reem. And I'm Akil, and we are your co-hosts. Next up, we have Georgia Rackison, lead design researcher at Consensus based out of the London office. Formerly, she conducted research for UK government, Cisco, Financial Times, Moo, Virgin, among other Web2 companies. Georgia, thank you for joining us this evening. A pleasure to be here. Nice to speak to you. Tell us a little bit about how you got into user research role. It's quite a niche role in the design space. It is a niche role, and it's a very niche in crypto and in blockchain. I started as a user researcher working at actually at an agency uh, which conducted research. Prior to that, I was at a tech startup and I was um, a head, head of strategic projects working with clients to kind of understand their needs in order to create innovative tech solutions for whatever they were they needed. But in that company, it was very design centric. But design at that company was really front-end development and and it was very technically led and there wasn't a person who sat in the organization who could help the teams understand actually what they should be building and how to build it based on user feedback so as my role as a product as a project manager I was coordinating that really without really even understanding that this discipline existed I moved from that startup to a user research agency in order to explore this world more. I really love uh, understanding how people tick, what makes people work, the neuroscience and cognitive behavioral science. And I find it fascinating. And I think the intersection of psychology and technology is the place where I'm most comfortable sitting. Amazing. So could you please share how that role and experience led you to Web3? And what got you even excited or interested in the ecosystem? I first bought Bitcoin in 2013 when it was 70 pounds. So that's about $90, I think. And I was really excited about this technology. And I, I guess you could say I'm maybe a slight anarchist at heart. I, uh, I'm interested in democratizing power. What really excited me shortly after I got into Bitcoin was learning about a decentralized version of Twitter which is kind of interesting because just very recently, uh, Jack Dorsey has been talking about decentralizing Twitter. Uh, Well, Twister, which is a decentralized uh, version of Twitter, has existed for a long time. It actually runs on the Bitcoin uh, blockchain, so it's pretty slow. But the point of that was it was created during the Arab Spring, you know, many years ago now, in order for people in countries where the governments were being oppressive to prevent their access to Twitter being shut off, right? So I suddenly was like, wow, there's so much more you can do with this technology than just making payments across borders. So it got me really excited about what this technology could do. And 
as my user research career in sort of Web2 continued, um, working for lots of different companies and agency and in-house, I was simultaneously having a voice and advocating for user research and, and user input in the blockchain space. So I was speaking at events uh, about user experience. And quite funny, at that time, I was working for Moo, the print and design company, um, which, of course, is famous for creating business cards, which has got nothing to do with blockchain. It's like the opposite of blockchain. But they do make some nice business cards. They make some lovely business cards. Yeah, I should stipulate I'm no longer paid by them to say that. But I do love business cards. At Moo, we got free printing. So I printed myself a load of business cards with blockchain consultant, user research on it. And, and people were really interested. But what I found was the more people I met who were building in the space the more I realized that really very few people are doing user experience research, user research, design research in blockchain. And I think there's some reasons for that, uh, which we can go into in a minute. So how would you define user research in the context of product teams and projects working on web technology? User research is the discipline of working out what you should be building, so what is the right thing to build, and then evaluating that to understand, have you built it the right way? And there are two main types of doing that. You've got generative research, that's explorative, discovery, finding out about uh, what people need and want, what their pains are in the context of their, their lives, their work, or whatever it might be that you're interested in. And then evaluative research, which is classically user testing, getting somebody to try to complete the task or goal on the thing that you've created, or it could be what your competitor has created as well. And the funny thing is, and it's kind of similar in my view a little bit across the whole of design, there are a few things that make user research in Web 2 different from user research in Web 3. And it's, it is to do with the technology. So to begin it's really early days in the blockchain sphere. It doesn't feel like it to people who have been in it, but it is to mass populace. And the reality is that uh, usability is very poor. The adoption curve is extremely high and is extremely steep, and that makes it really difficult to get people on board. So it's absolutely critical that we show value in the products we're building, enough value to move people from the web two version of the thing you're building to your web three one, right? How do you get them to care about that? That's a really big question that I think that isn't yet to be answered. But actually, the uh, bar is quite low for usability right now. So being able to create something that is well understood, speaks the user's language, and a user can complete the task they're intending to do feels like a simple baseline, right, for usability of web two. But that's hard to come by in web three. So if you can do user research on your Web3 products to get to that space, you already have a competitive advantage over some other products. In addition, a lot of the research that I do is qualitative user research. That involves talking to a few people to get really deep insights. Obviously, a business needs to make decisions based on multiple sources of data, uh, qualitative and quantitative. So when we talk about quant data, I mean things like platform analytics, usage data, you know, the classic Google, Google analytics, basically. And the reality is that that data is, is lacking in a lot of places, either because adoption is just low, right? If you've only got 100 users on your product, how can you really make informed decisions based on what people are doing on there? 
And also an intrinsic part of blockchain is anonymity. But it means that companies that have tens, hundreds of thousands of users in the very near future will still know actually very, very little about their users. So that's why it's really important to do qualitative user research, to layer on top of the data that you have, you know, to talk to representative users, the types of people who would be using your platform, to understand them deeply. And then you can use that information to understand the usage data that you're getting from probably very anonymous people. Could you backtrack a little bit and talk about how do you get buy-in from these different startups that you work with within the consensus ecosystem to even want to do user research? What are the intended consequences and value that they're looking for in the first place? Because that's a big challenge with technologists and people who actually have strongly held beliefs of the product that they're building. What I'm witnessing in the blockchain ecosystem, across the whole ecosystem, is fun fundamental flaws in the way we build blockchain products. Everything is very de developer-centric. We must be building all the time. There's like this velocity, which I think prevents teams from just taking a step back and thinking, not just can we build this, but should we build this? Is there a viable business behind it? Is there a user need that is fulfilling? And my experience has been that teams and companies that I've interfaced with across the whole ecosystem have been quite reticent to do user research. And I think part of that is lack of understanding about actually um, how it should be run and what the benefits of it are. The way that I've got buy-in is showing, not telling. Tricky to do because you obviously need the team to be somewhat bought in to some exposure to it. But normally this is with like low hanging fruit. So a great starting point is actually at the wrong place on the journey. The right place to do research is before you've built anything so that you can actually validate whether your idea that you want to build is a good one or not. But a really good place to start with teams who are less mature, who don't have a strong design discipline within the team is to start once they've actually built something and they have a desire now to, okay, we've, we've created it. It looks really great. We think the, the copy's great. We're going to launch it in three weeks. Let's put some users on it. Now, this is really not the best place to do it in order to save time and money because what you could find out from doing the research is actually you need to change direction slightly. But this is the, the point at which teams are most open to experiencing what it is like working with a user researcher and doing user testing. So what I would do is do a very tactical piece of work there, testing their thing, finding out what's really working on it, what are the issues, what would stop someone from using it, what it's missing, what is the language that users use in order to improve you know, your marketing copy and all that kind of stuff. So those are like the insights that would come out of a study like that. But what happens is the team experiences a moment of aha, where they go, oh, right, maybe we should have done this earlier. <laughs> so now you have the buy-in um, because they, they learn from, from doing this is not to hold their beliefs so tightly, um, to ask questions sooner and to be open to dissenting, dissenting ideas and voices. And that means that, okay, the product goes live because they're still committed to their release date. But then they're like, okay, now we've got this thing that we want to do in six months time. Let's start exploring that field now. And so already what I see is a, 
mindset shift and which is really exciting it, it is a journey as a user researcher you have to take your team the team who've never done this before you have to take them on this journey to help them understand what they're going to get because otherwise it feels like this amorphous confusing a bit artsy not scientific discipline uh, when actually it's really robust way of finding out what you should be building and all successful technology companies do it. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of these small product teams. If I am bought into the concept of user research, how do I go about in this space to actually find a user researcher? Whose job is it within the context of the team? And can someone who's not trained to be a user researcher kind of facilitate this work? It's definitely possible for small teams to do this without a user researcher. Now, I know that most teams and most startups don't have a user researcher. So it usually falls down to the designer to do that. I think grouping research with design so closely means that often, uh, unless the designer has sway in the company, the designer may be brought on too late to make impact through research. But a great way to help the team get bought into doing this research is to do it at the point where it's requested by the company and show it to them, prove how exciting and useful this is and get them excited about learning insights from real people. I think that finding a user researcher, it, well, it's a growing discipline. It was very small, but there are loads of resources out there for people to, to develop some of these skills. So the mindset that you need is part detective. So you, you want to look at all of the information there without trying to influence it, you know, like trying to have that objective point of view to find out the real facts. You also sort of need to be a therapist. You need to be able to understand humans and how people work and their brains because you're going to be talking to a real person. So you want to be able to, to not influence them too much to be able to extract out of them their truth. And it's also a bit like being on safari. You want to experience what, what is real without actually influencing it, right? It's not like going to the zoo. It's a safari experience, which is a little bit more detached and real. That's the important bit. And there are some really great guides out there for helping people learn to do this. I really recommend a book called Think Like a UX Researcher by Travis and Hodgson. I'm not paid by them to promote this, but honestly, it's been great for my work. And uh, even though I've been doing this for many years, but I re recommend it a lot to small teams, teams who don't have a UX researcher. They can uh, take loads of guidance out of this book and be able to apply it to the work they're doing. And quite often you might, it might also be the product manager, which is doing user research too. And I think that that comes from the lean startup mentality, which I am a proponent of. And I agree with that as a great way to get going. But I do have a question about the, the validity of just some data. I think that, and I've experienced uh, product managers who talk about doing user research, but actually are just soliciting the opinions of their peers. And, and unless their peers are the users, that's not user research, right? So we have to be talking to the right people. Yeah, so that's one of the challenges in this space. We have limited access to users, and then there's a lot of baggage that kind of exists with the technology that you need to frame when you're presenting anything to the research participants. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about the framing effect and how that 
impact how we have to frame Web3, crypto, blockchain before you even get to the product or the end user interactions? Being able to explain all of that to users is really, really difficult. So where we're at the minute is we, we are rapidly building in the ecosystem. Yeah, there's this technological development which is rushing ahead. And I think that what I'm seeing is a lot of we can build this. So we are doing it. And what has to catch up is the language we use, the user experience, the thinking about real user needs, that stuff is playing catch up. That's why we're in the place where we are at now, where it's so hard for somebody to onboard to crypto for the first time. And that the technological solutions that we're building, not necessarily solving any real need for most people. That is the reality. And I'm a huge blockchain fan, right? And so I think we need to face these things head on and question it. So in my experience working in the ecosystem, I've noticed quite a few cognitive biases come into play from the mindset of people building. Okay, And the first one I think that is important to mention is the curse of knowledge effect. So this is where people who are extremely uh, knowledgeable builders, blockchain experts, you know, super, super tech savvy people find it really hard to look at things from the perspective of lesser informed people. This is really rife in the ecosystem. The jargon, the language that is used is actually a massive turnoff to a lot of users as well. And what we should really be thinking about is using the language of real people rather than the technological language which we've um, decided upon. What I'm seeing is products being built by blockchain experts for other blockchain experts. And there's a finite amount of those people. So it's not really an amazing business case to only pursue that level. We need to be thinking about building products that apply to people who, who are not like us. I want to take a step back and ask you, what does cognitive bias even mean? Cognitive biases are inbuilt ways that our brain works as shortcuts for dealing with all of the data in our everyday life, right? So, for example, you're able to glance at a set of stairs, glance away, and then be able to walk up and down them, right, without having to um, calculate in your brain how far is the next step, right? So what's happening all the time is that that our subconscious is, is operating in order to make our lives easier. Because if we had to stop and think about everything all the time, we just wouldn't get anything done. Cognitive biases are shortcuts that actually play against us in some way. They're ways of making sense in the of the world, which actually are problematic in our modern society. So an example of that is stereotyping. Stereotyping is a cognitive bias. It has some basis in fact, but what happens is then we end up making shortcuts. We just assume all people who look like that behave in that way because I've experienced that before of that group of people. So that's an example of a cognitive bias. They're meant to help us and without them, we couldn't operate but they're also real problems to us making truly rational decisions. Because in reality, our cognitive biases are operating all the time on a level that we are not conscious of. So although we can be aware of what a cognitive bias is, we can't necessarily stop it. And we certainly can't recognize it until it's happened. I'm really curious. Um, So stereotyping, yes, that's a very well-known bias that 
I'm guessing almost every single person has been exposed to to a certain degree. But what does that mean in the context of designing digital products, whether it's in Web 2, but even more specifically in Web 3? For designing products in Web 2 and Web 3, we have to think about the biases that operate for our users. So we need to utilize good design practice that helps people get to where they need to go with the least hassle, provide them with a positive experience. And there's quite a lot of documentation of the um, cognitive processes that users go through when, when operating a product or you know trying to achieve a goal through um, an application. So there's not really a lot of difference there between Web 2 and Web 3. But my experience has been of the teams who are building is different. So a cognitive bias that is also quite well known is called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is when we take in all forms of data, but we change the way we perceive it to make it match our existing views. Let's talk about the crypto bubble. The crypto bubble is this crazy world, crypto Twitter, crypto Reddit of just constant hype all the time. And for example, quite recently, I've seen a lot of articles celebrating how much more ETH has been locked into Maker. And people are using this as an example for, well, isn't DeFi taking off? Well, couldn't you say that the price of ETH has gone down? So therefore, people have had to increase their ETH holdings in their maker CDPs in order not to get liquidated, right? It's not necessarily good news, but a lot of people will perceive it to be good news because it matches their mental model. And if you're strongly supporting a particular project, you might have lots to gain or lots to lose through its success. So what happens is we block out the noise that we don't want to hear. And we might even be sharing specifically the news that we do want to hear. So confirmation bias, I think, exists much more strongly in the Web3 community than it does in the Web2 community. So can you tell me where you've seen such cognitive biases and the kind of implications that it's had on a product or a service, whether it's in Web2 or Web3? A way to mitigate the confirmation bias in teams is to get access to alternative voices. And it's important for us to get out of our bubbles. So I really encourage um, the people that I work with to talk to research participants who are well out of our own sphere. They even don't know anything about consensus. You know, they live in different countries. We actually use some recruitment tools and platforms for doing that because I think a common misconception about user research is you have to go and find someone on the street or it's your colleagues. And there are loads of really good Web2 solutions for this now, which help you target the exact type of person you want in the country you want. You can screen them to decide exactly what type of behavior you want them to have had in the past in order to know if they're the right kind of person that you want to talk to. So for example, what they've done with crypto before, when they entered it, what what coins they hold, whether they do staking or not, et cetera, et cetera. And having those kind of voices is a great way to overcome our confirmation bias. I think also maintaining some healthy skepticism and realizing that not everybody is like us is really, really important. What I see is a lot of cheerleading in the ecosystem. So celebration of anything that happens, because that's, that tells us that maybe the price will go up. 
And this comes to the hot hand fallacy, which is another cognitive bias we have. So let's imagine you're playing poker with somebody and they play a brilliant hand and you know they, they take all the tables winnings, right? This is the hot hand fallacy that they will be able to repeat that luck. Now, what we have in blockchain is a lot of very successful, rich people who made lucky bets in the past. And that means that these supposedly successful people are starting crypto and blockchain companies with actually no track record of getting something to market. You know, they have that lack of experience. And that means they really need a helping hand in understanding what are the best practices in Web2 right now about building a, a technical product. I've spoke on a panel once where a member of uh, a company, his name I've forgotten, they, uh, it, this was an, at an event in London and they, they trotted out the classic T Ford quote, which was, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Now, I've heard this used as a reason for not talking to users, but there are some mistakes in this. For a start, what Ford is actually referring to is asking people's opinions, and that's not what user research is. User research is about understanding needs, pains, ambitions, motivations, in order to work out what is the right product that would fit for that. You don't go and ask somebody, what do you want? Because people can't explain that, right? And I think the fact that somebody said that to a user researcher is great evidence that they just don't understand what the discipline is because they haven't been in this position before. I mean, ultimately, users don't necessarily know what they need, but they kind of dance around it as you're interviewing them and you kind of have to read between the lines. Yes, it, exactly. It's a, an art. It's about really driving down into why don't you do that? What stopped you before? Oh, when was that? Oh, why don't you do that anymore? And what you get is absolute gold dust, really, for finding the opportunities for innovation and product innovation. So let's talk about Steve Jobs and the iPhone. Loads of people say, well, you know, people didn't know they needed an iPhone. And look at Apple, it's like the richest company in the world. I think it is. Uh, they um, Cash rich anyway. I think they've got more money than the US has. And Apple famously said, you know, we don't do customer research. We don't go and ask people what they want. Of course they don't. But they did loads of research to develop the iPhone. And it's common knowledge. Like, yeah, it's really frustrating having to carry around an A to Z of London like book in your bag, right? It's really frustrating that you don't have a larger screen to view your pictures on. These are all pains that people have due to the innovation talent within Apple. They were able to create a product that met those pains. You have to go out and find out what those pains are first, right? They didn't just come up with the perfect product out of nowhere. They've done some research to understand what is the opportunity here. So I think that there is just a lack of appreciation for some of the disciplines and ways of doing things that have created all of these incredibly successful tech companies. You know, they're not operating in a vacuum away from users coming up with genius ideas every week. You know, they have whole research teams creating research studies in order to solve problems for the company and solve problems for users. So user research, I mean, that's kind of like the bread and butter of how products are designed and why they're even designed in the first place. My question for you is, where does cognitive bias arise? Or have you seen it arise during, I guess, the research phase or the product development cycle? I would say that when I'm scoping a research project with a team, cognitive biases arise pretty quick. 
And often they are related to um, the answer to the question I ask, which is, okay, who do you want me to test with? Then we start hearing a lot of ideas about what their target user looks and feels like, right? Their behaviors and their attitudes, where they live, how old they are, all that kind of stuff. And that having that conversation is really important because it starts eliciting where people feel that users are just like them. So some teams and projects I've worked on, I've experienced the, the team lead say, oh, the target user is just like me. Now, that might be the case, but if you don't know that for sure, then that's a really bad decision to make. This is the first time that we start coming into these, these biases. So I try and help the teams um, think a bit more critically about, okay, so let's forget about how old they are and where they studied and all that kind of stuff. What is the behavior that, you're, that you think they will have exhibited? Did they buy in an ICO in the past? Have they played online poker? Have they tried to make a payment overseas with Bitcoin? All of these kind of questions. And we use that to find people who are the right sort of fit. Then, and I have had this before as well, when we run the research with those users, often those users won't sound or look or feel like the image of our users that we have in our mind. And that can be quite a jarring experience for a team for the first time where they realize, oh, this person who did do the behavioral thing that we think is really important, like plays online poker, has tried to send payments abroad with Bitcoin, actually, oh, they're not interested in this subject matter at all. Oh, they don't care about decentralization, et cetera, et cetera, right? So actually doing the research itself is the way to open our eyes to understanding that. Please walk us through the process of how user research feeds into the product lifecycle, how much user research is enough. You talked a little bit about the lean startup process and how that kind of influences the way you think about this. So could you please, for the listeners, provide some context to that? In the lean startup process, it's about learning a little bit of data often, and it's a lot about um, experiments, right? So define build, experiment, repeat in order to determine whether you're on the right path or not. In larger companies, then research might take place at multiple stages of product development. But um, regardless, on, on both fronts, the best place to begin doing research is at the very start. So this is the discovery phase. And for teams who are reticent to take their developers from coding, uh, I actually encourage those developers to get involved in the user research, right? So this might be well outside their wheelhouse, um, but what better the people who are building to get exposure to users really early on? So you can do this in like a design sprint for perhaps of two weeks, design sprint format. So you might pose a question, which is like, uh, what are the problems and pains of users trying to achieve X goal, right? Let's say that you're trying to build a product to solve for that goal. So then you could do one week of interviews where everyone takes it in turns to do that uh, and note takes and a week of cluster analysis and finding out the answers to that. And then what you get out of that is a load of actions and recommendations and actions and recommendations. That's so important, right? I, I can't create a research report and just let it die. That's pointless to have a research which is that's interesting. That's interesting is not enough. It has to have a purpose and it has to have 
an action at the end. So, okay, we found out this thing. So what? What does it mean to our company? And you might come up with, well, we could build this thing or we could do make this change instead. Then what you do is you collect up all of those recommendations and changes and, and, and actions and plot them against some dimensions that are important to the company. So, for example, it could be user value or revenue versus technical difficulty, right? And you, you plot these things out on a chart and pretty soon you start to realize that the things that are going to provide value to the user and that are technically easy to build, that's your backlog right there, right? And then you can start building something really quick. So that's a great way to kick off research at in a small team. Um, at a company, it's important to be doing this um, you know, frequently at, at any size company. In my experience, at larger businesses, we might be running research at, at loads of different um, stages for multiple products. But normally it would begin with a with a design, uh, a design sprint, which involves some research, or it could just be a research sprint by itself, which is we don't know if this is a viable opportunity for us, should we go and pursue it? And the best thing about design research is it's a time and money saver. So if you can validate some concepts really early, then you can know how you should proceed before sticking any team or even budget onto this project that you've got in mind. I think additionally, it helps with the team building side of things as well. When you get everyone involved within user research, do you want to touch on that? Getting teams involved in the research is really, really important. So um, I very rarely do research by myself. You know, my role as a researcher is not for me to know this stuff. It's to help you know it so you can make the decisions that you need. And the best way to do that is to get people to come and note take on the research sessions I do. So make a little sign up sheet and different stakeholders on the project can sign up to whichever session they want to be part of. At the end, when we all get together and discuss the recommendations that I've come up with, they've all had some exposure to users. And in fact, some companies actually use exposure to users as a metric for success. So there are some Web2 technology companies who will target all development teams with X amount of hours per quarter in front of users. And I think that's a really quite mind-blowing way of, of tracking success. They believe that this is going to give them a competitive advantage, basically. So could you tell us a little bit about the different methods you guys use as far as user research? Is it mainly in-depth interviews? Are you doing user testing and the role of surveys? Because from the exposure that I've had to the ecosystem, I feel like there are a lot of common mistakes that are still happening as far as user research is concerned. People are still treating it as more of a feedback loop for their sales pitch or their actual product. And there's a lot of surveys going out in the community, but I don't think they're actually getting to the core challenges as far as you highlighted earlier with what is the pain point and what are the key dynamics that we really need to be questioning. So what are some things that people need to be mindful of to kind of mitigate those risks? The research methods that we use at Consensus are quite varied. They range from contextual inquiry or sort of ethnography. That's going to your users, observing them, doing the thing, maybe at their home or their place of work and understanding what are all the steps they go through. What's the wider context of their world that informs how they behave and their attitudes to things? Probably what I spend most of my time doing is in-depth interviews. And those are normally one-to-one -one, over video sometimes in person, but you know we have a global audience, right? So Zoom calls or Google Hangouts, 
and just getting to know them in a lot of detail, trying to ask them really open-ended questions that aren't leading, that don't tell them what I'm trying to find out to understand their behaviors and attitudes. Uh, We do a lot of user testing as well. I think some people confuse user testing with user research. User testing is just one method of user research. And user testing involves getting the user to actually do the thing on your site. It could be just a simple prototype even. I've created prototypes in uh, Google Slides before. You know, you don't even need anyone to code the um, prototype in order to see whether a user journey makes sense or even if marketing copy makes sense. And then there are other types of research as well. Some other methods that we use more rarely, things like concept testing, so getting versions of marketing in front of people to determine whether what resonates with them and what doesn't, price testing, there's some methodology around that, diary studies, and then, of course, there's surveys. Now, surveys are essentially ubiquitous, and one of the problems with that is it validates their existence, right? So, you know, every company that you've possibly purchased anything from or interacted with has sent you a survey at some point. And annoyingly, because, yeah, annoyingly yeah. right, you know, and okay, and do you answer those surveys? You know, how do you decide which ones you answer and which you don't, right? So there's already a question there around who is answering your surveys. In my experience, when you launch a survey, it's pretty hard to get really good response rate back. And actually, people believe that surveys, um, if you get a large number of them, that it's statistically more valid. But that's actually incorrect. It's not the larger number that you need to care about. It's how about having a, a random assortment from a representative sample of your users. That's the only way to get statistical significance in a survey. So just email blasting people and then getting some responses back could give you very, very swayed responses, right? So who's going to reply? Is it just going to be your fans? Is it just people who want to work with you? Then you're going to get biased feedback. You're going to get you know, feedback from only certain types of people. And actually writing a survey in order to get quality responses is really, really difficult to do, right? Because you have to stipulate what those questions are in advance. In a one-to-one interview, you've got a two-way, right? So you can you can have that that back and forth with somebody and you know probe more. Oh, what do you mean by that? Why was that? Tell me more about that. And you can't do that with a survey. So what you'll end up having is hopefully you'll get lots of answers. You know, what happens when you get 20 answers? Can you really make a business decision based on that? And how do you know that you're asking the right questions as well? But that's not to say that surveys shouldn't be used. There is a place for them. Then the best place for using surveys is after you've done some qualitative research. So after you've done some in-depth interviews or some contextual inquiry, right? So for example, do five in-depth interviews, learn a lot about a few people, and then validate that stuff with a lot more people. So, you know, when you do qualitative research, you know, you're learning um, a lot from a little and quant data, you're learning a little from a lot of people. And the people need to think about that. I've seen surveys as the go-to research method for a lot of teams. And, you know, it comes down to just lack of experience. And also it, it's a comfort factor. It's like, oh, I can I can just code this, um, code this survey, you know, and then send it out and data will trickle in. 
talking to people is really scary. It is scary because you don't know what they're going to say. And we feel protective of our work. And yeah, it might we, hurt your feelings. It might hurt your it. feelings. Exactly. Right. And, and surveys are a nice way to not have that human connection. So I try and help teams get out of their survey mindset as much as possible. Another common mistake I see a lot in the ecosystem, especially, is treating a sales pitch or product demo as a research session. There's this like, oh, God, we, we've got a customer. We, let's turn it into a user testing session as well. you know. But the reality is that somebody who is being pitched to is very unlikely to give you unfiltered opinions or disclose their deeper thoughts and feelings to you, really. So you need to treat these things as separate activities. How does quantitative metrics play into your research? At the moment, we don't do a lot of quant research, and I would like to do more. You know, so the stuff that I used to do at Moo or other companies I've worked at, we would always layer quant and qual data together, right? So the quant data tells you what people are doing, where they're going on the site, what they're clicking on, where they leave, how long they spend on that stuff. And then the qual will tell you why. And the two things together are so, so important. I think the problem that we have in Web3 is firstly a lack of real users. So even if, as I mentioned before, even if you have 100 users on your site in a week and you've got some metrics to measure their usage of the site, it's very, very difficult to determine actually what's going on there, really. You know, you need very high amounts in order to know. We do do some high quant surveys as well. In fact, we're going to be doing one around DeFi in the coming year, which will be exciting. And another problem that I've seen in the ecosystem is also a dedication to anonymity from teams in their desire not to track any user metrics on their dApps. I think that's great, but we need a decentralized solution to quant metrics for usage data. So someone needs to build this thing. How will we create sticky experiences if we don't know what people are doing on these applications? And, and interestingly, things like Google Analytics and other uh, metrics uh, for, for tracking users on a site in the Web2 sphere lead to all kinds of um, optimizing experiences, you know, conversion rate optimization, for example, being able to create personalized experiences, you know, different experiences for different segments of users, being able to market to that person when they leave your product. Well, if you're devoted in Web3 to not tracking any data of users and not knowing who they are, that makes it really difficult to achieve any of those kind of sticky and quite um, successful, although maybe nefarious, you might, with, with good reason, might believe there's kind of nefarious activities too. But those are successful for a lot of companies. So how are we going to be able to achieve adoption and achieve retention? I think that's really key. Luckily, we have some projects like MetaMask who have actually implemented some sort of metrics and hopefully they share their insights to the ecosystem. And there are a few other projects like Dune Analytics that are kind of trying to challenge and uh, solve these issues. So hopefully within the, the coming years, we'll have some more context to what's happening on the blockchain in relation to products. And that's absolutely brilliant. I think that's exciting that it's happening. You know, it's still just early days. And, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for teams who are building it in this level of uncertainty right now. It's tricky and you know, you've got to keep your head high and make sure that you 
have the energy and uh, talent in your team to keep moving forward whilst also um, having some critical look at what's going on to make sure that we're not just chasing um, what we think is a good idea rather than validating whether it is or not. But there, I think that we're going to see uh, a lot of maturing, fast maturity over the coming you know, two to three years. This is why we need to bring on more designers to champion the users of our products. Exactly. Yeah. And for designers to be equal voice with products, with technology, right? You need the trifecta for it to work. And the minute the ecosystem is very developer centric, and, and that just means that it's kind of weighted a little bit too much in one side, in my personal view, right? There might be others who, who disagree with that. But, you know, once those can work as peers, you know, as as sparring partners, really, you know, product and, and design should be working hand in hand and challenging one another in order to make the best possible product, balancing user needs, business needs, and then with the technical voice to say, you know, is this even possible? And I think we'll get there. We're just um, still in the early days. Yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> Hopefully one podcast episode at a time, but um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Georgia, so much. This has been incredibly valuable for me and I know it was for Akil as well and hopefully for all our listeners out there. If people want to get a hold of you, want to connect with you, want to learn more about what you're working on at Consensus, how do people get a hold of you? Where can they learn more about what you're doing? Okay, Crypto Twitter. No, just normal Twitter for me. Although I do talk about blockchain and crypto quite a lot. I'm G underscore Rack, R-A-K. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn as well, Georgia Rackerson. And I'm always open to chatting and I, I talk a lot at events as well. And uh, so hopefully I see people around all around the world to share war stories from the research trenches and also um, success stories from products too. Thank you very much. Pleasure.